You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the frustrating case of 31-year-old Melissa Sue Mims Platt, who was allegedly severely beaten and left to suffer in agony in days in October 2008 by her living boyfriend. Weeks later, she died from her injuries, and her family is still awaiting justice. This case is one that makes me very angry, and I have a feeling it will make listeners mad as well. Before we get into this case, we have to take care of some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend of the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Isabella Moen and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Melissa Sue Mims Platt was born to Michael and Marion Mims on February 3, 1977 in Houston, Texas. She had hypoglycemia when she was born and had to stay in the hospital for a month. But little Melissa battled through it and joined her family at home. She has two sisters, Maria and Michelle, and one brother, Michael. When Melissa was eight, the family moved from Texas to Jacksonville, North Carolina. Melissa was described as a loving young person who would help anyone in need, and she had a bubbly personality and an infectious smile. Melissa loved the race car driver, Jeff Gordon. She often joked with her sister that she wanted to marry him one day. She loved listening to music 
and had a little parrot named Alvin that she adored. She got a job at McDonald's and was in charge of kids' birthday parties. It was being around kids that made Melissa realize that one day she wanted to have kids of her own. It was in October 1995 that Melissa gave birth to her first child, Brianna, and Melissa was happy beyond words. She got married in 2001. On July 4, 2003, Melissa celebrated the birth of her second daughter, Chastity. In 2005, Melissa and her husband divorced, and she focused on her kids, holding out hope that one day she would meet someone else and be able to again have a special relationship. She would meet someone else, but any hopes of a fairy tale relationship would be dashed. Melissa met a man that we are not naming in this episode and started a relationship with him, and they moved in together. It wasn't long before her family noticed changes in Melissa. She wasn't as open with them and seemed to be hiding something. Her communication with her family became more infrequent. On October 8, 2008, after not being able to reach Melissa for several days, her mom became alarmed and contacted the police asking them to do a welfare check. Police went to her home and when they entered, found Melissa unconscious in bed with severe injuries. The conditions were deplorable. Melissa was lying on the bed in her own urine and excrement, barely alive. Melissa was airlifted to Pitt County Memorial Hospital in Greenville, North Carolina, and she underwent an emergency craniotomy. She had severe bruising over her entire body, strangulation marks on her neck, and a broken jaw on both sides, not to mention a brain bleed and a blood clot. Doctors determined that these injuries had occurred several days before Melissa was discovered by police. Police obviously had questions for Melissa's boyfriend, and he told them that Melissa had sustained these injuries after falling in the bathtub. But doctors at Pitt County Memorial told family members her injuries were inconsistent with the fall, and during the craniotomy that they performed on Melissa, they discovered old head injuries that had been suffered perhaps months earlier. Despite the awful condition Melissa was in while at the hospital, she briefly regained consciousness, and when asked to give details about what happened, she replied, He dragged me out of the house by my neck, threw me on the ground, and hit me over the head with something. Melissa's family was horrified and shocked to hear this information. They hoped that Melissa would fight through her injuries and recover, but sadly that wasn't to be the case. Melissa remained in ICU until December 17, 2008, when she succumbed to her injuries. Her family was left shattered and made arrangements for services for Melissa. At the same time, they wondered how Melissa's boyfriend hadn't been arrested for something that obviously was not related to a fall in a bathtub. In January 2009, Melissa's mother, Marion, wrote a letter to the district attorney for the 8th District of North Carolina and an investigation was launched. Marion was told that someone would inform her when the investigation concluded, and that a decision had been reached. But the DA's office never contacted Marion. She followed up with him numerous times before someone told her Melissa's boyfriend wouldn't be charged in her attack. But Marion wanted to speak to the DA himself, and only when she threatened to contact the North Carolina Attorney General did the DA return her call? 
The DA told her that even though he believed the boyfriend attacked Melissa, there wasn't sufficient evidence in the case to take it to trial. Marion then asked if authorities at the very least could charge the boyfriend with criminal neglect for leaving Melissa injured in her home for six days. But the DA explained that criminal negligence is a misdemeanor. If the boyfriend was charged with that, he would most likely only receive probation. And if later, any evidence of murder surfaced, his office wouldn't be able to charge the boyfriend with anything else. Sadly, that was 12 years ago, and Melissa's family is still waiting for justice. After her daughter's tragic death, Marion looked at 2008 statistics for domestic violence. According to Marion, her findings show that in North Carolina, 131 women were victims of domestic violence-related homicides that year. The same year in Texas, where Melissa was born, and where Marion currently resides, there were 136 domestic violence-related homicides there. Those numbers are unbelievable and very sad. A tragic reminder of how alive domestic violence is in this country, and that we need to find a way to stop it. Marion is now an advocate for victims of domestic violence. You can follow Marion on the Facebook page Justice for Melissa Platt, and you'll be able to find more details there about Melissa's case. Domestic violence is real. It's scary, and it happens. Sometimes, many times, there are warning signs of domestic violence. Spotting some of these warning signs may be able to help you or someone you love survive domestic violence. If you or someone you know may need help with escaping a domestic violence situation, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline by phone at 1-800-799-SAFE or visit their website at www.thehotline.org. Melissa's sister Michelle joined me to discuss this frustrating case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Hi, Michelle, and thank you for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your sister Melissa's case with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. I know you've been struggling with Melissa's death now for 12 years. Um, how hard has that been for you and your family going through this whole ordeal? This this has been one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. Um, and also my, my father um, passed away two years later from, from cancer. And we're, it just is that much more of a sting that he never got to see justice for my sister. Um, it's just, it's been, it's been rough for all of us, especially over the years, just fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to get her story heard and just hitting a wall everywhere. So it, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, and we'll get into the details, but it's a very, uh, frustrating. I found myself getting angry as I was reading and, and yeah. going through some of the stuff. So, um, but I guess if, if we can to start off before we go into those details, can you tell us a little bit about Melissa herself and, and maybe share some of your memories of her? Yeah. Melissa had a great sense of humor. Um, we were incredibly close. She she loved kids. As she got a bit older, she started working at McDonald's doing birthday parties for the kids, and she just loved it. She always wanted to have kids of her own. She did end up having two daughters, um, but it just just happy, big smile, make you laugh. Um, so yeah, she's just a, a good, kind-hearted person who would do anything for anybody. And did you have a, a big family? Yeah. Well, there was, you know, my mom, my dad, and there was three daughters and a son. And, and you said you were pretty close. Were you close in age as well? Yes. Yes. Just two years apart. Yeah. And what was going on in her life leading up to the time of her death? Was there anything... Uh, as far as relationships or, or anything changing in her life that was sort of maybe a warning of what was to come? Yeah, she got into a bad relationship. Um, she lived in a different state than what me and my mom and dad and all of us were living in. Um, she lived in North Carolina, which is where another sister of mine lives. And she got into a a bad relationship with a guy who has a we found a documented history of domestic violence against two ex-wives um, and her, you know, her personality change. We stopped hearing from her as much. She was harder to get a hold of. There's kind of a lot of typical stuff. Um, she did leave him at one point, but went back. Um, and we do know that he was being abusive towards her um, and just trying to urge her to listen. But, but she didn't. And that's kind of how, you know, just all those changes we were seeing up until that point. Did she ever come forward and admit that there was 
some domestic abuse going on, or was that something that you sort of pieced together your family? No, she she did um, admit to it. Various like, horrible things that he would do to her. Um, he would he would beat her up, and he would if she, if he didn't like something she said the way she said it, he would like lock her out of their home, and she would have to sleep outside. Um, just things like that, and she, but she did admit and told tell us that he would hit her and push her and slam her in the wall, things like that. Were there ever ever any incidents where the police had to be called? Um, I don't think there were police calls that I'm aware of. She was too afraid of him, you know, to to reach out to anybody. Um, so I yeah. I don't believe so. And I guess you, you mentioned she was in a different state, so that made it hard to maybe see firsthand what was going on um, because of the yeah. distance. Exactly, yes. Did she have anyone there, any kind of support system there where she was living that tried to help her? Not, like, not too, I mean, not too, too far. Uh, my, my other sister said, hey, you can come stay with us and in trying to urge her to get out of that situation. But she, she wouldn't listen. He, he would always make threats against her. If she did this, if she left, you know, he was going to hurt her, her, kill her, her family, and you know, things like that. Just the manipulative tactic abusers use. Yeah. And it's, it's always a pattern with them. There's always something in their past that, you know, you can spot that that raises a red flag, and a lot of times they'll say, "I'm going to change," or or maybe someone thinks they can change that person, um, and that's a, a very sad, common trait that we see in a, in a lot of these kind of cases. Um, yeah. Let Let's go back to October of, of 2008 on October 8th when your sister was found severely beaten and rushed to the hospital. Who found her and, and, and reported her being hurt to uh, the medical, or medical uh, uh, team or whatever? Okay, so starting a few days before that, um, my mom was trying to reach my sister. And, you know, she didn't answer the phone. The, the man responsible did. And he was just making up excuses and why she couldn't come to the phone when my mom would call. And then it got to the point where the phone would ring and then the answer machine would pick up and she'd leave uh, messages and those wouldn't be returned. And then just got to the point where he removed the, or turned the answer machine off. So it would just ring and ring. And she's like, my mom's like, okay, no. And called in a welfare check. And that's the only reason she was found is because of that welfare check. So the police go to the home. Does, does her boyfriend let them in willingly? Apparently he, wasn't home. He had been at work and he was coming home and they, he, they reached him and he said, yeah, you can just go in through the back. Um, and he got there shortly after is my understanding. Um, and, and yet they went in and found her in the state she was in. So she was in the, uh, you know, their master bedroom. She was on the bed. She was naked from the waist down. She, was wrapped in a blanket. She was covered in her own urine and feces. Um, she was bruised. 
from head to toe. I mean, some very, very large bruises. Um, her jaw was broke in two places. She had a brain bleed and she like couldn't, she couldn't move. She couldn't get up. She wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to call for help herself because she couldn't move. Um, so that's how she was found. The first responders uh, in their report and things they said was, was the worst condition they've ever seen anybody in. And when she got to the hospital, the, the doctors there determined that this had happened days before. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, and then there was also um, some like bruises and varying ages of healing. Um, and oh, and she also had um, had her toes like broken and, and rehealed on their own. Um, so yeah, you, you can just tell there was a history of of abuse going on. But yeah, all the other, the injuries that I described, uh, the broken to all that, yeah, that had been recent within maybe a few days of being found. And, and I've read in a couple spots that she was in that bed for for five days or so, um, mm-hmm. just waiting for someone to help her. Um, and yes. this person that supposedly cared for her left her lay there and uh, didn't lift a finger to help her. That's correct. Not not a finger. Um, when when asked why he didn't call nine one one, he he at first said, "Oh, she didn't want me to call an ambulance and go to the hospital." And then he changed and said, "Oh, well." They've been called out here so much they wouldn't come out here even if even if I did call, which made absolutely no sense because when you call, you know, they have a responsibility to come out. So that that just didn't make any sense at all to me. Um, yeah. So he he he. Um, so she had a broken jaw in two places, and I I remember like it happened yesterday, being at the hospital, and the detective working the case, which this was his first case as a detective ever. And I said, why are you not at least charging him with negligence for not getting her medical attention? And he told me, well, because he was taking care of her. I said, how was he taking care of her? And he said, you know, feeding her and keeping her hydrated. Like how exactly is she being fed? How is she eating with the jaw broken in two places? And he said, yeah, it's possible that you can eat with a broken jaw and just got up and left the room. And I was kind of in shock. I didn't know what to say at that point. And that, that conversations really haunted me. Right from the beginning. That's a, that's a troubling thing to hear. Yeah. And especially because he made an excuse that she fell and that's how she got hurt. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, he claimed she fell in the bathroom and he later changed his story to say that she fell on the porch. Now, my sister's last words to us were like, hey, did, you know, I don't know if I can say his name here, but did he do this to you? And she just had a look of fear in her face and like, yeah. And she said he grabbed her by the neck and dragged her outside and hit her over the head with something hard. And she did have, and that's, Another thing I meant to mention, she had what looked like a strangulation mark around her neck, 
which, you know, how would you get that from a fall? I mean, how would you get any, any of the things that were going on from, from a simple fall? Like the, the first story of me falling in the bathroom was like on, oh, she fell on a, like this tiny plastic, like trash bin thing in there. Um, yeah. But so the, yeah. the doctors weren't having that though. They, they knew that that was the result of her being beat up. Yes, they they even told us there's no way, no way she could have gotten all these injuries from what he's describing happened. Because we're all we're going off of what he says, you know. She she couldn't really even speak. We it was almost like we thought she was like going to turn a corner at one point, but ultimately, obviously, that she didn't. Um, but yeah, the doctors were like, no, no way. What so the the it, it, you mentioned a brain bleed that sounds like a very serious uh, can, was that the most serious of her injuries is that what ultimately caused her death? Yeah, that that's what um, the consensus is. Uh, and and while they were they had to do a craniotomy on her to and, and then you know, like remove the pressure and everything that was going on in her brain. And while they were operating, they found an old similar brain bleed that had just, it wasn't as bad, but it, you know, I guess healed on its own, but they still saw the signs of it. But, um, the, what, what we, what we know, I should say, and from what doctors were saying, you know, if she would have been brought to the hospital days earlier, she may still be here because she was just left. And that, that brain bleed that was happening was just, doing so much damage day after day after day. And she, she was either laying there like minimum, but like six days, even up to 11 days. So that's wow. their time frame that they gave. I mean, that's just horrible that she had to lay there with no help, uh, suffering for days. And, and you mentioned it, that had she gotten, care sooner maybe that would have made a difference and she could have been saved yeah and yep. so your your family's waiting all these weeks for her to, to hopefully recover she didn't how hard how tough was that when she passed away that that's just something that just to this day i can't I can't get out of my head because we were there at the hospital. She, you know, started having uh, necrosis in the brain. So she was going and ended up being brain dead. And we, we had to make that decision to take her off life support. And then we were there with her in the room when that happened. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, take your time. I, I totally understand. I, I again, I can't even imagine what you're going through. If this is my family member, I'd be devastated, like you obviously were, and then I'd be also angry that at the lack of what was being done uh, to get her uh, justice. Um, yeah. During this time when she's in the hospital and, and that she passes away, was her boyfriend there at all? No. No, and if he would have came up there, the doctor said that they would not allow him to come in, even if he tried. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Uh, and so when she passes away, obviously you're, you've got to deal with the aftermath of that and, and planning uh, a memorial for whatever services you did. But then I would think your family started thinking about what's going on. Why is this guy not being arrested or facing any kind of justice? Tell me a little bit about yeah. that part of it. That, that's what has me so angry. Um, they apparently, I'm saying they, I'm sorry, police um, apparently were interviewing him, you know, while she's in the hospital, interviewed him, his ex-wife's kids, who clearly were talking about all the abuse their mother succumbed to by him. Um, so there's this documented history of, of the type of person he is with you know, multiple people and just nothing. And and what gets me to this day is, you know, my mom will put a pack together of all the information. She sends it to the guy responsible for all this, the police, the district attorney, like every year. And the district attorney at the time told my mom, I believe, you know, he did this to her. I just don't have enough evidence to take it to trial. And that's what they tell us. They don't have enough evidence to take it to trial. And I don't understand that because at the minimum, uh, there's like a negligent homicide I've looked into. And he went on record to say he was, you know, quote unquote, caring for her. Well, he didn't get her medical attention. And as a result, no matter how the injuries were caused, which we do know, but the end result is the same, and he's never been held accountable, even at a minimum that. My, my sister was forgotten so quickly by the police, and to the point, the captain of the police told my mom, stop calling him. <laughs> and, and that's what we've been dealing with for years. Did the medical examiner make an official determination of her cause of death? Still, like, pending, but the the one reason they have listed is closed head injury. And and did they rule it a homicide? Or is no. that still pending? No, that's the part that's pending still. Okay. So, uh, how frustrating. It's just, uh, I, it's, it's, pretty, yeah. it's obvious that this guy is responsible. Um you know, they say someone's innocent until proven guilty, but I mean, let's let's call it what it is. Um, and and uh, I'm a very big supporter of police, but sometimes them uh, and the legal system fail people. And and I, it, yeah. it sounds like there's no doubt they've to this point failed your family um, and and failed your sister. So. What do you do to to sort of move forward and say, okay, let's see what happens next? Have have they ruled against 
ever taking any actions? Have they told you that if something comes to light, they might do it down the road? The, what they said is they hope one day he's going to be in a bar and drinking and just says something. And that's pretty much what they told us, just kind of hoping he'll slip up one day and, and tell somebody something that gets reported. That's it. Well, that's... <laughs> um, and, and, and another um, really weird thing he um, he did is like right after my sister was found and, and taken to the hospital, he burned, took his the mattress she was on outside, burned it. He like shaved off all his hair, which was a very uncharacteristic thing for him because he was called Pretty Boy because of his hair, and he loved his hair so much. Um, so he shaved all that off. He went and tried to break into his ex-wife's house. Uh, it just really weird behavior. Um, after she was found, that that's never made sense to me. So I'm not, I don't know, not, none of that has, I don't ever think, thoroughly been investigated. And that's like I said, we've been hitting walls year after year after year until I just said, you know, um, I got to, I got to do something. At the very minimum, people will know who she is, know her name, know what happened to her. So I've just been reaching out to, you know, true crime YouTubers and, and people on Twitter and just trying to get her story out there. I, I, I again, I, I really feel for you because I, I, I just feel that this is a, a clear cut case of, of what happened. What it seems yeah. like happened really did happen. Uh, and I know, you know, I get the, the district attorney wanting to be cautious because they don't want to, try this guy and then fail, then they won't be able to try him again. Um, so right, that right. I, I understand that part, but yeah. um, at the same time, this seems like an open and shut case. He's in the, the home with her. He's um, as you mentioned, even if it's a lesser charge of, of not helping or not getting medical help, because there's a, there's a point from, from the sounds of it that she was so, hurt that she wouldn't even be able to, to really say whether she needed help or not. That's a case where he should have gotten her help uh, on his yeah. own without, you know, whether she wanted it or not. Uh, so that really doesn't make sense for, for that excuse for him to say that. Right. Exactly. And what, I mean, it just keeps me going is I mentioned her last words that she was able to get out were, were telling us, what he did and we told the police and they said, no, there's nothing they can do about that. Cause that's hearsay. So that even went nowhere. And I thought this was kind of a, like one of the, I, I don't know if there's a law around uh, just from things I've read, like deathbed kind of, you think, you know, you're going to die. So you say something, but they said, Oh, there's no way to prove that she knew she was going to die. So it, it can't even be done under that. <laughs> So just, just walls everywhere. Just yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, I, I can't even imagine how frustrated your family is because it's frustrating me just hearing it. Um, yeah, very. So you've tried to, I guess, move forward and, and keep this keep her case out there, as you mentioned. Um, what are you hoping that that's going to happen? That they'll just one day knock on this guy's door and arrest him, and then you'll 
go through the legal process and hopefully through a trial and stuff? Yeah, all we've ever wanted is for him to be held accountable in some way for what happened. And yeah, if if some if it happens and it goes to trial, I mean, and we have a jury that can see all the evidence, decide um, that would be great. That's what we've always wanted is for a jury to hear to hear it and and be able to make a decision. And I feel like we could live with that. We, even if it went the way we wouldn't want it to go, that we would know at least, at least we tried and, and, you know, we got that result. We got that result. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't, I just don't see it happening. I, I hope this is what I hope for daily, but I don't know what it's going to take to, to even have that be a possibility. Hmm. And, and October's domestic uh, awareness month, uh, yes. domestic violence awareness month. So it's an appropriate time to be talking with you um, because it's a, it's a real problem that happens a lot. And yeah. uh, it's tragic when we talk about things like this, that could have been prevented or someone could have been saved. Um, so I think that's an important point to hit. And, and we know you know, based on history of, of the people that do these things, it's not usually a one-time thing. It's a, you go back and look and there's, there's a pattern to these people doing this stuff in the past. And you said that's the case in, in this uh, circumstance. Yes, it is. Um, and, and that's something me and my mom have discussed. Um, if anything, if, if her story gets out there and it helps people to see, you know, this is how things can end and, and to kind of motivate them to get out of that situation. Uh, that would be great too, just to try to turn this into some kind of positive to help other people. Yeah. Because there's undoubtedly going to be someone out there listening that either maybe is in the same similar circumstance or has a family member that is, uh, in those circumstances. Um, so you never know if, if, if your experience can help someone else uh, through the through a situation like that. Right. And um, this happened in a very, very small town. I mean, around 500 population at the time, kind of one of those everybody knows everybody things. And uh, one very odd thing I'd like to mention, um, if that's okay, is sure. when my sister was found, my, I don't know, how this woman got my mom's number, but my mom got a number from an unknown. It just said unknown on the caller ID and the lady on the line was talking about how uh, this man has such a history of domestic violence against multiple people that he's gotten away with this kind of stuff before he's going to be protected and to just keep fighting to try to bring her justice. And we still to this day have no idea who that lady was, but she was trying to warn my mom that it's going to be an uphill battle, which has been very interesting to me. And I wish I knew who, who that was. Maybe that person will hear uh, this podcast and and come forward, contact you and reach out to um, let you know what she had in mind or uh, how she knew what she knew. Um, Yeah. Cause she was right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and again, it's, 
we we see these kind of cases. We see patterns of of this stuff. That people don't change when they get you know are abusers, and it, there's a pattern until one day someone is goes too far. You know, it um, someone is killed, uh, and that's how a lot of these things. Uh, as we've covered in a lot of cases that I've covered anyways, you get to the point where you see uh, just this, this history of over and over and over again. And then finally someone uh, is, is dead from, from this. And that's, that's what's real tragic is that this could have been prevented. Right. And I wholeheartedly believe, uh, wholeheartedly believe that this is one of those cases where he, just took it even further than he normally does. And he just was sitting there hoping that she, yeah, she'll come out of it. She'll come out of it. You know, um, it, he, he had a can with a, a straw in it that had some kind of liquor in the can that he was giving to her. She could not give it to herself. And I really believe he was trying to keep her intoxicated and, and foggy during all that, which I, that, it's just heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And, and then for them to think that he's trying to care for her, uh, right. You know, caring for her would have been calling nine one one immediately. And, you know, if he was responsible owning up for it at that point, but at least it, it could have possibly saved her life. Yeah. It was probably the biggest slap in the face to have a detective tell me that he was caring for her. And then all I can picture is the state she was in, you know, just a human laying in their own, you know, feces and urine. Exactly how was he taking care of her in that state? It, it the, I just, the, the audacity to say that to a family member. Yeah. I, again, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of, of police uh, and the work they do, uh, yeah. but they don't always do the best job and they don't always handle interactions with family uh well um so anytime i hear that it makes me cringe a little bit because i think a lot of them are really doing a great job and then you do have some that are just not doing a good job and and you have an experience in this case and i don't know how much that factored in but um, right down to the district attorney not being able to to give you uh justice or give your family justice um and and again hopefully maybe down the road they change their tune on that and they they do arrest this guy and he faces court proceedings i'm a huge supporter of the police too um and the majority excellent job and i to this day i haven't let that that person paint my image of you know police overall um, so yeah, I, I commend the ones that go out there daily, um, for us, but yeah, they, we're human, you know, and there's, they're not always going to do the right thing. And this is just one of those cases where they didn't handle it right. Yeah. And hopefully again, uh, justice sometimes moves slowly. Hopefully it does come, come around to your family though. Um, I know, I, so. I know there's a, a justice for Melissa Platt Facebook page. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we've, we've had that for quite some time. Um, and we just, we have 
hard to see pictures by of you know when she was in the hospital but we we are trying to help people to see that this could happen to you if you're in this situation please try to get out and i know that that time period when people try to get out it can be the most dangerous um so if if anybody is is wanting to get out just i urge them to be as careful as possible during that time um but we we've been running that i just created a, a justice for melissa platt twitter account um just try i i twitter um it seems I seem to be getting uh, more traction over there uh, to just get the word out, posting updates. So that's what that's what we have those for. Yeah, and and hopefully people will check that out and follow that. Um, and, and we mentioned that someone in your situation or someone uh, may have a family member that's uh, in your sister's situation where they're maybe not the same state or maybe not where they can be reached to, to, to have someone there at their side and they're a little bit more on the, um, isolated side. Uh, so those people too need some kind of, uh, uh help and, and there is help out there. You know, I think it's important that we yeah. give this out on, on the, uh, air. There's a national domestic violence hotline. People can call, which is 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 800-799-SAFE. Uh, and and there is there are people there that can help you. Um, but you, I think you mentioned the, the, the key thing is that getting away or making that first call, that first step to try and get help might be the scariest thing, but it's also the most important thing. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I've, I've also, uh, put out there on that Twitter account that, you know, my DMs are open. If anybody's in a bad situation and just needs somebody to talk to, um, I'm not saying I'm some qualified person, but just a friendly voice. Um, I'm, I'm always available for that. Well, and hopefully if anyone out there listening does have any, uh, need for, to, just to talk to someone that's maybe in a, in a similar situation, they'll reach out to you. What advice overall do you have to someone out there that might have a sister or a, a family member that's going through the same thing you are? Oh, so many things I wish um, I would have done differently. I wish I would have, you know, talked more, try to urge her even more to get out of that. Um, I mean, I was, but of course, you know, hindsight, I, I wish I would have, I wish I would have done more to help. I wish I, I, I had offered even to come, come stay with me. Um, but you know, it, she just was so dismissive of, of any help because she was just so scared. Um, I, I just wish I would have given her some more like resources, like you said, the domestic violence hotline and just other people to talk to. I wish I would have gone to North Carolina and try to just say, come back with me or come back with me. You know, I really wish I would have done that. Would your advice be go with your gut if you feel something's wrong to maybe do something uh, maybe above and beyond what you're feeling, maybe just, uh, 
make a call or take a ride or, or something like that? Yes. Yes, I so many made things like that. I wish I would have done uh, uh, differently. You know, and I hope, I don't know if you feel any sense of guilt. I hope you don't. Um, I, I, I feel bad for anyone that goes through this situation because they're always going to second guess and, and look back and say, what can I have done differently? But this, this isn't on you. Um, this is on the person that did this. Yeah. And guilt has been a really big internal struggle of mine over the years. I'm getting better, but I admit I, I kind of go back to that and just what if I would if and, and I have to tell myself, like, what if there's nothing I can do at this point? Um, no matter how much I go over this in my head and and beat myself up and wish I would have done this or that different, I, it's past that time. And all I can do now and what keeps me going is just I know where I know what happened to her. I know where her last words were, and I'm just going to keep fighting to get her story out there, help other people in bad situations, and and just and. and one thing we, we want to try to do is uh, go through maybe a private investigator. I don't know what all they could do differently, but just to get a fresh pair of eyes on it and all the case information as well. Uh, anything that can try to get us any closer to some kind of justice. And maybe a, a fresh set of eyes or an outside source coming in to sort of look at it from a different angle, maybe that would help you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would hope so. Well, I hope, again, I I know it's been a long road for you. I hope that your family does get justice. I hope that one day this person is held accountable for what he did. Um, It's it's a pretty clear-cut case of, of someone that did this before and could do it again. Um, that's what's yeah. really scary about it. Um, and until yeah, he's, he's out there, yeah, until he's facing faces justice and is, is pays for what he did. But in, in the meantime, I hope your family does get justice at some point. Thank you. Appreciate that. I hope so too. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. Once again, please. If you or someone you know may need help with escaping a domestic violence situation, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline by phone at 1-800-799-SAFE or visit their website at www.thehotline.org. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.